0: Welcome to episode three of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. Tonight, we are going to be talking about getting your business affairs together. But quickly, I want to thank Downtown Music Holdings for presenting this episode. Downtown's mission is to shift the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those who support that creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive set of tools and services. Downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business. They believe in partnership, advocacy, and helping musicians develop sustainable careers so they don't require their artists to give up any of their copyrights. Okay, so welcome back. To recap what we have covered so far, We've gotten our art together in episode one with Vernon Reed of Living Color. So I'm kidding, obviously, but in the past few days, you've got your songs together. You're starting to get ready to record. You're thinking about art that's true to your heart, your soul, and your spirit. And last week, I talked about pre-recording marketing foundation and monetizing your music before it's even out. So this morning, I woke up to an Instagram post, followed by an email from Noel Gallagher of Oasis, who is one of my favorite artists. They announced, and this is being recorded in January, they announced a June release with a six-month pre-order. So I could instantly pre-order pre-order Noel's album through a variety of price points that had gorgeous artwork and formats from CD to... Cassette to deluxe vinyl ranging from $10 to $40, which also included tickets to his upcoming tour. So, this is a huge artist who doesn't necessarily need the money. I mean, those Wonderwall royalties, you know, I can only imagine what that looks like. Yet, Noel and his team are doing it right. And I can also only imagine how much revenue they'll be generating between now and June before the album is even out. So I hope that helps to hammer home some of what I was trying to get across on Saturday. Start monetizing your music before it's even out. I can even forward that email to some of you. Um, It was just perfectly executed with everything that I was trying to teach you uh, on Saturday, right? Like I I did see it on social media, but if I didn't, I got the email because I'm on Noel's email list there was a price point that covered everything. I was like falling for every part of it, ready to spend over $100. There was cool bundles. You could even put together your own bundle. And again, the revenue they are gonna generate over the next six months is all before the album is even out. So please keep that in mind and I hope that helps to illustrate and illuminate what we are talking about on Saturday. But let's get to today's topic. So we're talking get your business affairs together. And before I bring out our guest, who is the distinguished Carl Folks Esquire, managing partner of the Folks firm and co-founder COO of Eagle, what is business affairs? In business, in, in the music industry, business affairs means legal, basically, you know, like your copyrights, your legal agreements. I would say it also means money and accounting. We're going to talk a little bit more, well, we're going to be talking about revenue streams throughout this podcast, and we'll have a revenue stream-specific podcast episode uh, later in the season, and we'll also talk about accounting and business management in our final episode. So today, we're really honing in on, on legal, on that part of business affairs. But when you hear that term, business affairs thrown around, they're talking about legal and accounting. So also before Carl comes on, I want to give some basics on the two main rights in music. Does anyone here know the two main rights in music? It's totally understandable if you don't, because many of you are one person, and I'm kind of giving it away, that makes music and also writes music. I could put Oscar on the spot because he goes to Berkeley. So what are the two main rights in music? Um,
1: the, the terminology may be slightly off, but uh, there's publishing and the master recordings.
0: Yeah, That's exactly right. Thank you, Oscar. Good job, Berkeley. Good job, Oscar. Yeah, exactly. So there's two main rights in music. There's the recording and there's the songwriting, also known as the publishing. And so what we're talking about there is if you get offered a thousand dollars for a sync placement, and we'll have a whole episode about sync, but sync is short for synchronization. So that means matching your music to picture in film, in a commercial, on a TV show. So say you get offered $1,000. $500 is going to be for the recording. And 500 is for the songwriting, which, again, I've met artists in their 30s that have been making music for years that didn't learn that until they were an adult because it's like, oh, well, I've been writing and recording music and I'm one person. But that's an important fundamental to understand when it comes to to legal and business affairs in the music industry. I'm also going to give a quick overview on label structures, which, uh, you know, With what I just talked about, with recording and songwriting, you know, I think everyone, I don't mean to assume, but I think everyone here owns those rights. The vast majority of artists are not on a label. So when you own your recordings and you own your songwriting, you get 100% of that $1,000, right, that comes in from um, my hypothetical sync placement. I'm generalizing uh, when I talk about label deals, but I just want to illustrate kind of the big picture so you understand uh, what's out there and when you are getting offered some of these deals. So independent labels generally receive 50% of your recordings. That can totally vary. Some of the more established indies are gonna take, you know, closer to 80%, but generally like a true independent label is going to keep 50% of your recordings. Sometimes they own the recording in perpetuity, What does perpetuity mean? Anyone? Yeah? Forever, Forever. yes, that's exactly right. Others are going to be a license where you get the rights back when you give notice, that's very important, and we'll do deeper dives on on this later. When you give notice after a few years and are fully recouped, and recouped means whatever money the label spent, that's been made back through recordings and syncs and, and generating income. An indie label may also offer you a publishing deal and put a little pressure on you to sign that. I personally like to have publishing separate from a label to expand the team. You can also hold on to your publishing by letting an indie know that you have an administrator already, a publishing administrator, which you can do through SongTrust. And we'll dig into music publishing. We're going to have a whole episode on it called Music Publishing Isn't Scary or Confusing coming up in in episode five. Um, But that's something I've done when an indie label, you know we're doing a deal with an indie label and they're putting a little pressure on um, to do publishing. I say, oh, well, their publishing is already administered. I don't generally say it's with song trust because then it's like, oh, well, you can get out of that. Um, But I think it's good to um, expand the team. Major labels more often than not, and again, all of this is negotiable, depending on your leverage, a major label will keep roughly 80% or 85% of income on recordings forever. And will also want to own or have a cut on all of your rights moving forward, not limited to publishing, merchandise, touring, branding, sponsorship, and more. And again, it totally depends on your leverage. I'm speaking generally. I mean, if you're a brand new artist, you might get 10% from a major label, Um, I interviewed Freddie Gibbs' manager, Lambo, a few years ago. They worked their butts off for a good decade, um, you know, self-releasing and doing independent releases, and that has given them the leverage to license their releases to major labels, so they still own their recording rights. At the same time, you know, I I wanted to give you kind of that big-picture overview, but it actually bothers me um, in academic situations where it's like, you know... Should you go with a label or should you not go with a label? I'm like, well, do you have an offer on the table or not? Right. So the vast majority of artists are self-releasing, which means they own their recordings, which is also extremely empowering and not something that artists, you know, give or take Fugazi or Ani DeFranco had access to in the pre-digital era. So there are massive artists, you know, Macklemore is a great example, who own their recordings, own their rights, and then again keep. of that revenue. So now on to our guest for today. Carl Folks Esquire has successfully negotiated touring contracts, record label agreements, publishing deals, merchandise, and management agreements throughout the entertainment industry. Carl's also a certified NBPA player agent under firm sports. Over the course of just a few years, His firm, the Folks Firm, has negotiated over a combined $45 million worth of deals for artists, music producers, joint ventures, and innovative record companies. His firm's clients include talent that have amassed billions of streams, RIAA certifications, that's the Record Industry Association of America, so that's going to be platinum and, and gold records, Grammy Awards, and appreciation from the likes of Forbes, Rolling Stone, OK Player, Business Insider, Trapital, Complex, ESPN, Sink Tank, Variety, Billboard, and more. Carl has also been recognized as a 2020 Diverse Representation Rising Star, 2021 Variety Legal Impact Report nominee, 2021 Variety Top Music Attorney. It keeps going. He's made the National Black Lawyers 40 Under 40 list is a 2021 hits daily double noisemaker and 2021 Bloomberg law 40 under 40. I am so excited to welcome Carl Folks Esquire. Welcome Carl.
2: Happy to be here.
0: All right. How's it going?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Another another day in the, in the music industry, but um, you know, I'm ready to to try to drop some gems.
0: Love it. How's Los Angeles?
2: LA is colder than usual. Um, it's like like fifty nine degrees, sixty degrees. So not the not the typical sunshine.
0: See, it's not so bad here in Milwaukee. Forty degrees today. It's just like LA. So there you go.
2: It's just like LA.
0: Exactly. So let's start at the beginning. You began your career in corporate law and international business before teaching music business and hip hop culture, while also opening your own firm. So I know that's a lot, but what prompted this evolution?
2: Yeah, I I always say, I like to start that I'm I'm not really a music guy. I don't, I never wanted to necessarily, necessarily work in music. Um, And, you know, it wasn't a childhood dream or anything like that. Um, My initial plan when I got to law school was to definitely be in the entertainment industry, but more on the sports side. So, you know, negotiating deals for athletes, you know, basketball players, soccer players, Um, things of that nature. And um, it it was really, as as anyone might know, especially, you know, um, in in the Midwest or some of the regions outside of the, the, The bigger capitals. Um, and, and I'm from South Jersey, right outside of Philly for context. Um, the industries aren't there, right? The the amount of job opportunities aren't there. So it was really tough for me to even get an internship um, or anything like that. So uh, when I graduated law school, um, I just wanted transactional law experience. I wanted to learn how to negotiate. wanted to learn how to be a good lawyer. Um, and I kind of wanted to start there. And it was just friends and um, A&Rs and people like that who I knew in the music business who were just kind of always putting that, that that bug in my head. Hey, there's not that many entertainment attorneys. There's not that many no, not knowledgeable entertainment attorneys. I think this is something you should try out. And that, that was kind of my my entry point in.
0: I love that. I mean, we need, in my opinion, experience from other fields. So I could see where your friends and colleagues would say, hey, you know, bring that unique perspective to our industry because it's, it's definitely needed and, um, is very apparent throughout your career. That's for sure. So you're also a managing partner at firm sports. I work in sports as well, although I'm definitely more on the music side. And so I get this question a lot. What are the differences between working in sports and music? I'm so fascinated by what, what your experience has been.
2: Well, I, I think music's more of the wild, wild west. There's less commonality, and you know, there's no CBA, there's no you know agreement amongst major labels or any indie labels or anything like that. There's not no governing body kind of controlling the space other than you know the, the United States Copyright Office or um, you know or law or legislation. So it's definitely more of a wild, wild west. And I think in the sports world, it's a lot more governance, a lot more rules. You gotta you you have to follow. Um and um so, you know some of the same stuff you know goes on, but because of the wild, wild west and the, the the room for innovation, in a lot of ways I feel like music's a better space to be in for entrepreneurship, just cause there are less um less red tape, um, you know, less um even qualifications per se um than, than I think you have to have in sports. Um in sports there's so many just massive players like WME, CAA um, Octagon that just have been doing it for such a long time. Um, you know, music, you know, I could have a buddy, you know, two towns over who's making music in his room and, and now I'm a manager. So, uh, it, it, it just, uh, the entry points are a lot different.
0: Yeah. And WME is William Morris Endeavor. CAA is also a big talent agency and Octagon. I've, I've, uh, worked with Octagon a lot in the sports realm, but do they do anything else besides sports or just sports?
2: Um, I, I think they do entertainment across, I think. And they, I know they do marketing. I know they take, yeah. um, when I was uh, in undergrad going into law school, I actually took a job with Mar- uh, Octagon. Um, and they do the marketing experiences for companies like BMW, Audi, things like that. So it's, a, it's like a marketing agency, agency too.
0: That makes sense. And not to get too off track, but I've worked with them in the Olympic space so I could see where they would translate a lot of those relationships into... Um, deals with Olympians. So that's very cool. You know, you bring up such a good point that music is the wild, wild west. And I really just want to emphasize that because, you know, a lot of times I see, sometimes I'll see like a 20-year-old running a label and offering a really old school deal. And I kind of get the vibe. It's like, oh, well, that's how it's been. So that's how it is. So I really just want to echo what Carl said. Like you really can create your own destiny here. Um, because we're not as beholden um, to certain, you know, standards and, like you said, existing organizations in the sports industry. But that said, is there anything we as the music industry can learn from the sports business?
2: Yeah, I definitely think there <clears throat> there needs to be more governance um, as a group. Um, you know, it's it's tough just because of the way they're they're. Uh, you could equate the major leagues to the major labels in, in some ways, but they're so different in, in so many different ways. So it's, go- it's harder to create more governance and rules that we all need to follow. But um, I, I think whether it be the NCAA, which has been obviously a poorly run organization for some time, but um, the idea of the NCAA, the idea of the, the collective bargaining agreements between players and leagues those things make a ton of sense, right? If all major label artists were to have a, a artist um, a lobbying agent, right? Like, and, they, and they, they were one side and the major labels were another side. Um, there could really be some progress, I think, that could be made on a, on a joint front um, in regards to some of the deals that, that happened in the space. But right now, it's everybody for yourself, um, and there's always... You know, as much as we, we we wish people wouldn't take bad deals and do um and, and do um, janky stuff, um, that stuff happens all the time. There's always going to be somebody willing to take those deals because um they might need the money or you know their their family sick or you know wherever they're at. So um I, I would love to see some more organizing inside of music to to raise the sophistication and the standards. Um, it through through unionizing or lobbying or, you know, whatever needs to take place.
0: We're going to dig a little bit more into this later, but I can't resist. What is an ex- just a general example of a bad deal in music?
2: Yeah, I think a bad deal um, is one, one that doesn't stand the test of time, you know, generally speaking. But, um, you know, I, I always talk about, uh, I use a phrase called Lomo that I developed. Um, it's a strategy, it's length, obligation, money, and ownership. And I think those four things sort of um, are, the, are the key tiers of an agreement, right? And you could prioritize those things very different, right? Length, you might, length might not be as important to you as initial money or ownership might be more important than everything. You kind of, so anytime I'm kind of dealing with clients, I kind of ask them to rank those things because you're not really going to get favorable terms on all four fronts. Like, right. If you, if you want a bigger budget, um, you're probably not going to get a short deal. They're, they're going to want a longer, it's a longer term investment. Um, if you don't want as much money, you're going to get a lot, of, you're going to have a lot of flexibility as it relates to, um, you know, uh, if you don't want the, you, you, your terms can be a lot more flexible, right? So um, I think thinking in terms of LOMO and kind of the four key elements in an agreement, you know, you get to um, kind of decide your own fate. So every, for everyone, a, a bad deal is different, but I think, Um, Generally speaking, I would say um, long, really long deals that have spotty accounting um, and don't sort of require much or have any strong obligation from the label side, um, they generally don't stand the test of time. And um, you're seeing it now.
0: 100%. And I can't resist because I I have seen this and been horrified before. We'll talk more about this in the publishing episode. But there are still co-publishing deals that will get offered to you that want to own your songwriting forever with no advance, with no money up front. Um, I've only seen that come out of Nashville, but please don't ever sign that frankly. And, um, you know, like I just want to reiterate, like what Carl said before, like you don't have to take any of these deals. Like I know it's exciting and and you want to do it, but we are not beholden to standards in the sports industry. Um, you know, for better and for worse, right? So don't let someone pressure you into something like, oh, well, this, this, you know, this is how it is.
2: So you and, are, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. add, please. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll add one quick note. I mean, one, one of my little phrases is, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. It's really, really hard to get out of a bad deal, right? Like, you know, you got to be willing to litigate it, you know, do whatever it takes to get out of it. And that could be long. It could ruin your momentum. It can be exhausting. You know, lawsuits; those they get thrown out a lot. How oh, I sue you, but it's a, it's an emotional, ta- emotionally taxing process. Um, and you know, I don't think a lot of people account for that. So, um, no deal is always better than been a bad deal. It's really hard to get out of bad deals.
0: It's so true. And I was just reminded of an utter horror story that hopefully would never happen in this era. But this wasn't that long ago. There was an artist named Poe that I really loved in the late 90s, and her first album had a radio hit. Her second album got bigger, and then, um, you know, she was on a major, and this is, like, early 2000, so everything is getting sold to each other, and it's sold, 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 sold. And then her rights were available at auction for her recordings, for her name, and for likeness, and a stalker bought them, and she was unable to record under the name Poe for like a decade. So we don't mean to terrify you, but I really just want to reiterate what Carl said. Um, no deal is, you know, is better than a bad deal because we want you, um, to be able to make, make music forever. That's for sure. So, and what we're going to talk about positive things soon, I promise, but you're also chief operating officer and partner at Eagle where you are disrupting hip hop, tech, and venture. So, tell us about Eagle. Tell us about this entity.
2: Yeah, Eagle. Eagle is a really cool company that um, that was I, I co-founded with an uh, incredible artist named Blast, who is um, who, who, who's had an incredible run um, right now in hip hop and R and B, um, and then um, his manager Vic. So, the three of us kind of co-founded this company, Eagle, uh, with the intent to disrupt in the music industry, but a lot of it was cashing in on that cultural currency. I think the beauty of working in the music industry and having access to artists, talent, those sorts of relationships is one, generally speaking, people outside of the industry um, view you as a tastemaker, or at least view, or think you're cool in some way or know somebody really cool. So, you know, you're sort of able to leverage that to to do a lot of stuff outside the industry, I think. you know, music is just one vehicle in, 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 a, in, in a person's journey to impact, right? So um, eventually I think music should be a, a vehicle that gets you to other forms of impact, whether it be, um, you know, building, you know, uh, building a tech company that uh, that makes the world a better place or um, doing a lot of foundation or community work. And um, so Eagle, we're, we're doing a lot of cool mm-hmm. music, um, you know, obviously have Blast, we have a few other artists. Um, But we also have a partnership with Warner Chapel um, that we sign songwriters and producers to. And we partner and we do a lot of cool stuff. And um, it's not just music. It's, um, you know, we take a lot of music money and um, invest it in in tech companies. And um, and we're also doing a lot of community work. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes the music industry makes you feel like music is everything and music is just another vehicle to impact.
0: That is so true. And Warner Chapel is a major publishing company. And so is Eagle all like a business built around Blast? Like is Blast involved in bringing in other artists? Or Because to me, it sounds like you've built a business around the artists, which I freaking love.
3: Yeah, I think the
2: idea of building an artist company is um, what happened. But I think Eagle's a little different. I think we have another artist signed um, and then we have songwriters and producers signed Um, and we have a growing merch business that's separate from, from blast or, um, so the idea was for him to have his own entity, but you know, some of the greatest and biggest companies in the world aren't associated with one person. So I think eventually you want to use your personal influence to create an entity that isn't so much so tied into your fate, like who wants to be, you know, performing till they're 70 years old or have the obligation to maybe if that's what you want to do, that that's fine. But um, you know the goal is to, to build bigger companies inside the music space that, that artists own, right and the stakeholders that help them build it, they own some too. And um, I think that's sort of the blueprint that we're trying to to lay and, and show that like you know artist companies are more traditional business than, than people think and you know you should staff them properly, you should have you know proper corporate governance and you should try to, um, expand into different an, uh, arenas and areas, um, just like any other company would.
0: Would you say Rock Nation is a good example of that?
2: Great, great example of that. And, um, uh, and, I, and I think that's another great example of some building something that is bigger than you, right? It's like, um, you know, Jay would have just called his company Jay-Z uh, Inc., you know, sure, it would have been cool. But you know, rock exists separately, from, you know, and, and it's just one of many ventures. And um, I think at Eagle and Blast in general, um, you know, without speaking for him, um, I, I think we're not the traditional, um, I'm an artist, you know, it's all about creativity. Um, I think this art is just, again, a vehicle to get to the next
0: level of impact. I love that. So you have your firm, the Folks firm. Your your partner at Firm Sports. We just talked about Eagle. How do you balance these three incredible companies and roles? Because that's a lot.
2: Yeah, that's a. I ask myself that every day, <laughs> um, and it's it's definitely uh, time. Time is a finite resource, and um, you know I think time management is a skill that you constantly have to work on some of the most successful people in the world probably haven't mastered time management the way that they want to. So um, it's uh, it's just some time management is something that you work on every single day. Um, but I can tell you, it starts with a lot of the basics, you know, organization, um, waking up a little bit earlier, um, you know, uh, protecting your time, right? If there's a meeting on your calendar and it doesn't make sense, you know, knock it off. Um, just all the, just being, being a, scrutinizing um, your life to make it more efficient um, is is something that I try to do.
0: It's so true. I mean, people always say, you know, to me and I'm sure to Carl, like, oh, you work in music and entertainment. That must be so exciting. But you're exactly right. It's a lot of time management. So that's a really crucial skill. Okay. So now we're going to get into what I call the vegetarian meat of this episode. Get your business affairs together. I'm going to say up front, and Carl can feel free to back me up on this or not. None of this is legal advice. If you enter into any sort of label, publishing, producer, or management deal, make sure you you've retained your own music attorney to represent you. I feel very strongly about that. I've had clients, you know, that I didn't know very well at first, want to work with a family friend or a real estate attorney, and that's just like I could do a whole podcast episode on why that's not a good idea. Um, but there are also legal elements that you actually don't need an attorney for. So that's what I want to dig into a little bit today. Would you agree or disagree with anything I just said? Cuz you're actually an attorney.
2: No. I, yeah, I agree. I agree deeply. <laughs>
0: cool. Okay. So first, how should songwriting splits be discussed, determined, and solidified? And what is a songwriting split? Maybe we should define that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously a songwriting split, you're talking about um, the underlying composition um, in the pub side. Um, So how is that publishing going to get distributed and divvied out? Um, That's a great question. I think, you know, it's it's very genre specific. You know, I think um, each genre kind of distributes publishing a little bit differently. I know in hip hop and R&B, we kind of view this, um, you know, the 100% bucket as 50% goes to the composers, so like the produ- producers or the instrumentalists, and 50% goes to the actual words of the song, the lyrics. And it gets based, and it gets broken down based on that. So if you did, if you wrote all of the lyrics, um, you would get 50%. And if you and if you also produce the beat, then you get 100%. But um, we, we kind of base it on that. But I know other industries um, where a lot of what we would call, you know, co-producers, you know, in rock or country, they might just say, Hey, you're not a co-producer. You're, you're like a work for hire instrumentalist. Like you you just played a little instrument and we're not going to give you any publishing. We're just going to pay you out. Um, so a lot of times it's industry specific. Um, and I think it's very important to get context for your, your, your genre in particular.
0: I love that. And I also want to highlight how I said, how should, how should songwriting splits be discussed? You have to discuss them. You have to talk about this, you know, because I've seen, you know, not people I've worked with, but heard so many times of, you know, this is good life advice, but like people making assumptions, right, that they wrote on something and then something is released and six months later, it breeds resentment. People are upset. So I always say before you go into the studio get coffee, you know, with your players, your producer, your mom, anyone that's going to set foot into the studio. And if you wrote those songs, and I'm speaking a little bit from like the indie rock end, just for example, but like if you wrote those songs, let people know that, but then say, if you feel you contribute to the songwriting process at any point, you have to tell me immediately after the session. So that way there's a clear channel of communication and people aren't just like making assumptions and getting upset. So, you know, would you agree that it's just important to have a process to discuss this so everyone's on the same page?
2: Sure, and but I would say the way that music is made now, a lot of it is um, a lot of it's through the internet, sending loops and sounds um, back and forth, which I think makes the business even a bit easier to talk about, right? Because before you accept somebody's sound. You could say, "Hey, so what? You know, what's your terms usually for a guitar loop or this? You know, vocal sample you sent over. What? You know, what? Do, what's your terms? Um, that's a that's a that's a easy. That's very okay. I know what I'm getting if I use this. Um, when you're actually in the studio, um, especially with unsophisticated, um, and I'm not calling them unsophisticated because you know they're dumb. I mean, unsophisticated because they don't have any you know experience in the industry." Um, when you're dealing with unsophisticated sort of other, you know, co-writers or co-producers, um, you definitely want to have that conversation. If you're doing it in studio, you definitely want to have that conversation about, hey, here's what you can expect, or this is what, I have this amount of publishing available for, you know, uh, for what what I want you to contribute. It's very important that you have like an actual understanding and um, a, going into a song as much as you possibly can, right? Because I know the creative process is very, can be loopy and it can be very informal. Um, But, you know, if you are collaborating with a songwriter, okay, like, hey, if we're going to make the song today, we'll just put the the writer side 50-50 today, even if it's a little bit unfair, right? Like, even if, you know, you might have wrote a little bit more than that person, sometimes it's just easier to, Break it down that way. So you got to You got to have those tough conversations. But I would say a lot. The way a lot of music is made today, it actually leaves a lot of room for um, you know co-writers and co-producers to do that stuff via text, inter- you know, email, um, and kind of establish terms before you even use the sound.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to bring that up too. That that's kind of like old school country Nashville. But you're exactly right. Like you know, sometimes co-writers might go into a co-writing session and agree before they even, you know, walk in the door, like, okay, we're just going to split this 50-50, you know, that's easy. Um, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of big songwriters that could command a higher songwriting split based on their name, and they don't, you know, they say, oh, I wrote 5% of that, or, oh, I wrote 80% of that, you know, so we've given you a few options here. And after you have that, oh, and I, I also want to reiterate what you just said, but sometimes it can be easier, you know, with email and text, that's something Zoe Keating said on season one, that can kind of take the emotion out of it a little bit. So if you're feeling awkward or you're feeling hesitant about having these conversations, communicating via email, you know, gives you a moment to breathe. But once you do agree to these splits, whether it's it's verbally or however, um, how do you re- recommend people really uh, memorialize those songwriting splits so everybody has that down, if that makes sense
2: yeah I mean um, that's a lot easier to do if you have management or legal in place um, you know because then you know, maybe you just you know have your manager send down an email or a split sheet um, but if you don't have that I mean you know I think um, there are templates online that, that are simple split sheet you know one pagers that are available that you know obviously you want to be catered to each scenario but if it's not, it'll do the job for now, right? Like, I think sometimes you just want to know, hey, I'm getting 50%, they're getting 50%, right? Yeah. And um, so those split sheets can be can be helpful, um, if, even if it's a little bit, uh, you know, less formal than a split sheet, um, any memorialization or any record. So if I send an email saying, please confirm these terms, just write confirmed, right? And, you know, you kind of have a, an agreement right there. So um, I, you just want that on chain or some sort of record of it that and things do get sticky, um, you know, you, you have something that you can sort of cite or, you know, you know that you can you will go back to it.
0: That's really important and powerful what Carl just said. So, again, the like old school pre-digital way would be a split sheet. You know, Carl and I write a song together. We agree to 50-50. We sign our names. Um, but I really encourage you to have these conversations and then agree to the terms over email and then like Carl said, say, you know, please confirm what we discussed today. Make sure you get a confirmation on that. And I would also say do that over email more than text because you don't want to lose something to iCloud or it's stuck, you know, on an old phone or something like that. So then, then you have it on writing in writing and everyone's on the same page. So I am super excited about this next question as a uh, professor in particular, but also someone that talks to artists all the time. Where can people get beats online that they can use for sync? Does that, that might not beats exist online
2: that they can use for sync. that may not exist, so, but, but maybe
0: if you could, you click, mean yeah, go ahead. A,
2: like somebody who wants to pitch to like Netflix or
0: so what I'm talking who, about,
2: what do you mean? Like yeah. someone who writes a song and in bunch of, like beat stars, for example, is, is, or, or yeah.
0: Yeah. So what I'm talking about is when a student comes to me with their music and says, I got these beats online and it says I can distribute it to Spotify or it says this or it says that. I'm like, okay, I guess I believe that. But then to me, the main issue is if someone wants to license that song, that just seems like a legal nightmare and impossible for sync. So I guess what I'm trying to ask, is there a place where Musicians can go and get beats online and actually really use them, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that's a very 2023 question. I'll I'll, I'll say that Um, just because that's just, you know, very realistic. That's just something that that happens all the time. Um, No, obviously BeatStars is available. And, you know, you go to BeatStars website, there's tiers, right? You can buy like an exclusive license. So it's just yours. Um, Or you can buy like a partial license. And you know, in those license, in those sort of uh, terms, there should be a sort of uh, description about what you can actually do with that song. Um, now, doesn't mean that people are always going to enforce it all the way, all the time. Um, and but you just want to be on the safer side. So, BeatStars is a pretty cool uh, platform where you can like purchase beats. Um, you can either get the exclusive rights for, or you know
3: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: For, for um, you know, set price or you can kind of buy like a, you know, a non-exclusive license or, or, or a smaller license that, that's um, a bit more catered to what you need. But, um, yeah, that exclusive license is usually what you'll want if you want, to, if you want to pitch it for sync and put it up on um, Spotify and DSPs.
0: Thank you. You have no idea how helpful. <laughs> That is. I, and I also, well, what I usually say is, or create your own beats, but I know that's uh, easier said than done.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think,
2: I, I don't think that's a bad idea. And I think um, it's getting easier and easier uh, to any producers out there, you know, listening to this. Um, this is not a knock, um, but it's never, It's this is the easiest time it's been to, to learn how to make uh, a beat or make music. Um, and then, you know, AI kind of kind of coming into the picture. Um oh maybe guys like me can even start producing. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Are, are you more of a musician or athlete or both?
2: Uh, definitely athlete. Definitely athlete. Cool. I play, play basketball pretty competitively. Um, so I, I'm not a I'm not a musician at all.
0: Um, well, fantastic. And I was actually going to ask if you had a background in sports, because I think that really helps to hone time management skills. So that makes a lot of sense with what you were saying before. Yep. Love it. So what is a work for hire agreement? And why does everyone who sets foot in a studio need to sign one? In my opinion, don't mean to force that second half on you.
2: Yeah. A work for hire just means you were brought in specifically to, uh, as work, right? You're a hired person, and you're not being separately your, your contributions aren't viewed separately. So by bringing somebody um, to specifically you know add some horns to a song, um, you know you that might be a work for hire situation. Now that now as work for hire, you won't have the same claim to publishing or rights to copyright. The thing about work for hire that's really, really, really significant is um, there are no termination rights, right? You can't come back and say, hey, 35, 45 years from now, um, you know, I, I, that was a work for hire, but you know, the, it, it expired. So it's mine again, you know, when you assign copyright, like a copyright assignment, there's what we call it a, a right determination. So you might, you might've gave, given your rights away to a copyright, but in 35 years, um, you know, you might be able to get that copyright back, but in a work for hire, there is no, you know, uh termination right. And, and that's that, that's really significant.
0: That is such a good point. I had not considered that. And, you know, again, what we're talking about here, I might be dating myself with this reference and I don't care. You know, like Lauryn Hill's famous album, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill that won like a million Grammys and is so iconic. A lot of people came, this happens all the time. A lot of people came out of the woodwork after that was successful and said, Oh, I wrote on that. Oh, I played on that. So we want to make sure that, you know, like you said, if, if you're hiring outside players and, and you wrote the music and you own the recording that, uh, you know, it's clear like, hey, I'm paying you this amount. And like I said, it goes back to communication like we were talking about before. If that horn player writes a whole new part, you know, in my opinion, be upfront about that. Like, hey, if you feel like you write on something, let me know so we can figure out your publishing. Um, but again, you don't want someone coming th- this is why like, you know, you can't enter Beyoncé's studio without signing a work for hire or really any major artist, right? Because no one wants to deal with someone saying, I wrote that word or I wrote that lyric. Where yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say
2: I was gonna say that 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 will dictate a lot of it. You know, I think there's what me and Emily are talking about, um, which are some of the principles and the things they should probably follow. Then there's also the common sense element where sometimes you just need to get in a room and you need to get it get an opportunity and you're not always going to be able to to negotiate um, and that's, that's just a sad reality reality of it. You know, I have some clients who've done some work for really really big artists and um, if that same contribution was with a smaller artist, they would have got a much larger chunk of publishing and you know a, a higher royalty split, but. You know, you pick your battles, and um, you know, I think that's like an unsung part of all of this, right? You want to have your ducks in order, um, but the reality is, um, there's always a there's always a business decision, um, you know, at the end of every single decision you make.
0: And do you have any? I mean, they could hire you. Do you have any recommendations on where people can get a work for hire agreement?
2: Yeah, you you definitely hire an attorney, um, but they, so that's also another agreement that's common. Yeah found on the internet. And, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend solely relying on internet-based templates, but, um, again, that's one of those agreements that, um, that's pretty standard and easy.
0: I totally agree. And there's a great company. I should learn how to pronounce their name, but it's CoSigned. Co yeah, I believe. Co- co-signed. Yeah, exactly. And I think you can get work for hires there for like 40 or 50 bucks and they're a music specific company. Or you didn't hear it from me or Carl kind of implied this, but there's probably free work for hires floating around online. So that's a pretty standard. But go with Cosign. They're women, women owned and, and they're great attorneys. So here's a broad question. How are producers paid?
2: Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, producers are usually paid in three ways. Um, you know, you usually get your, your percent of publishing um, which you'd collect, right? That's no one else's job but yours to collect. Um, so you know uh, your publisher or ASCAP, BMI, all of those things combined. That's you know that's that's it. that's your publishing's part. Then there's the master royalty um, or what is you know known as a producer point. So that's a that inc- that's a piece of income that could, should be coming from um, the major label um, or the record label. And if it's not a record label, it might be an indie distributor. You know the artist might put the song up, be a distro kid, and you should be a, a certain percentage of, um, you know, gross receipts or net receipts, depending on what you um, negotiate, should be coming to you directly, um, you know, from the distributor. So that those are what you call the producer points. Um, and then there should be some sort of fee in advance, um, you know, uh, advance usually recoupable. Sometimes you can get a non-recoupable, uh, recoupable, um, you know, and the recoupment ties to the master side, not the publishing. There's no. Recruitment on the pub side—that is something you just collect. Your um, your the, the recruitment's tied to that master royalty or a producer point. So you take a higher um, advance; it's going to take you a little bit longer to get paid out on the master royalty. Um, so that's maybe something to consider. I would say this as a rule of thumb: if you're dealing with major labels, um, this is not a knock to major labels um, as a whole, but the accounting systems are shoddy. I don't care what anyone has to say. I don't trust them. I don't even understand how they're calculating recruitment, um nor do i think they're dedicating the time energy manpower or technology to accurately um disseminate accounting statements so um i try to get as much money up front on the master side like a you know a bigger advance if i'm dealing with a major label but you know if you're dealing with artists who's, who's distributing directly via distro kid or united Masters or something like that um you know a higher royalty in lieu of an advance might be something that that makes sense because you know you're going to see those royalties
0: so let's say an artist is not on a major label because most aren't and say an artist runs a Kickstarter or something or they have the money to pay the producer's fee. Um, so that's out of the way. What kind of t- talk about the producer points a little bit. Talk about the royalty on the recording side like w- and not to jump around too much. What does that look like if a producer's with a label or or not what are what are some standards and? Um, numbers there.
2: I mean, that is an amazing point that I think even music industry people struggle with because producer points, when you think about PPD or, well, and you know, the, the ancient royalty terms, um, they are really meant for record labels in the archaic record label system. So three producer points is usually three points. So if an artist is signed to 18% royalty deal. Uh, meaning you're, they're getting eighteen out of the uh, the hundred percent pie. Um, 3%, 3%, um, three percent, three percent, three producer points would mean that the artist is now getting fifteen percent, and not instead of the full eighteen percent. So a point is just one royalty percentage. Now that doesn't exactly translate maybe to the way independent artists um, kind of put out their music. But generally speaking, a rule of thumb would be um, say that the average common producer points for a major label artist is. Um, Three, three out of eighteen, 3%, three percent, uh, three producer points. Um, whatever that number is, whatever that um, that percentage um, comes out to be, you you try to apply that on the net receipts or the gross receipt side. So you you use something more along with, hey, after marketing costs or after the song uh, cost and production are paid for, um, I'll give you fifteen percent. You know, um, in, you, in, instead of viewing it as a point, you're not. There's, there's, there are no producer points when you're distributing yeah. um, directly via DistroKid or um, any distributor. You're talking about gross receipts now. You're talking about a percentage of my 100% pot, right? Because you're usually talking about 100% pot there. Um, how much of that 100% is going to um, that producer? And I think if we're using the same old school 3 out of 18, you can do that math to figure out what percentage that is. And you can direct that amount. Um, via, via the hundred percent pot.
0: Yeah. And I would say, and obviously feel free to, feel free to disagree. That's going to slide based on if you can, because af- thinking about an independent artist, that producer royalty on the recording side is going to slide a little bit depending on if you have the cash or not. Right.
2: That, that's spot on. Um, you know, I read a lot of producers and I kind of kind of got my start being a producer advocate. So, um, you know, if the artist didn't have the advance or yeah. fee, you know, I will always say, "Hey, then we need we need half the master." Sometimes you yeah. get it, sometimes you don't. Um, but you have a lot uh, more of a stake to demand more if they're not if they can't forge a full budget.
0: And I actually think that's really cool. But, there, but uh, I'll say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would say there's some
2: alternatives too. I think we've also been creative. You yeah. might say, "Hey, I want a feature credit. I want those uh, yeah. streams to show up on my DSP profile." Um, hey, I I don't, um, you know, I want to swap instead of I want to start putting out some music and I want a verse from you. And instead of, you know, uh, a fee or whatever. So there's ways, there's creative ways for you to get your value back in return. I make, I might make more sense for you.
0: And I love that. Like, that's something I love about the modern music industry, because in the pre-digital era, you were beholden to like, Okay, that three, four, five point, you know, producer that Carl was talking about. But now you might want to work with one of Carl's producers. You might be a super talented artist. The producer's into it. Carl's into it. You don't have that cash. But I actually think it's cool, which might sound weird, but I think it's I think it's nice to have that flexibility um to give up a higher percentage on the recording if you don't have thousands of dollars to 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 pay the producer, so I think that's very empowering. Um, I want to give you one other scenario. Say an independent artist, and obviously these are all all hypotheticals, but say an independent artist gets the cash together for a producer. You know, is giving you is giving the producer points um, that's asked for, maybe fifteen percent or whatever on an independent release. But what if the producer, and again, you you did say before this can be genre specific. What if the producer doesn't write on anything? They're literally just producing the recording. Do you still feel they should be owed publishing? Obviously, it's going to depend on who you're representing. But does that make sense?
2: You, you mean only just like a beat contribution, like instrumental?
0: Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Uh, I made the beat. Yes. Although that's a whole yeah. podcast. I'm um, sorry to interrupt. I, I, that's a podcast episode in itself, right? Like is making a beat songwriting or, or producing, but go ahead.
2: Yeah. And mo- I would say in modern times, you know, all, if you're getting a piece of publishing, you're kind of viewed as a songwriter, right? At the end yes. of the day. I mean, you know, cause you know, in the publisher space, you're either the songwriter or the publisher, right? So if you have any sort of publishing, you kind of are viewed as a, uh, as a songwriter. So I think that word's a bit archaic in the modern age, especially when you think about the way music's made. Um, you know, sometimes people, when they're picking up the music industry, is trying to learn it. Sometimes they think the word "songwriter" um, is an exclusionary term, so it doesn't include producer. And in my vantage point, that's just not true. Um, you know, you're 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 in a composer, right? Like you're not Mozart. You may not be paying it, playing an instrument, but you're composing the music. Um, which in turn makes you a songwriter because, you know, you're creating melodies that are musical notes. Um, That's very technical, obviously. I don't want to get there. So if you are a producer in hip-hop and R&B, you will get your cut of publishing. That is the most standard thing ever. And you will get talked out of that time and time and try to get talked out again. But that is the baseline standard in hip-hop and R&B. If you produce the beat, um, you are going to get 50% of that song on the publishing side. So, Um, it can, it can be a very lucrative career if you are getting big placements in, in hip hop and R and B.
0: Do you feel that way if it's a brand new producer and a bigger artist?
2: Um, that's a very practical question. Um, I would say as a rule of thumb, I would say, yeah, I mean, you gotta, Matt, you gotta think about the way producers and songwriters eat, you know, artists get to tour the song, they get the, the mass, and, and for context, people, you know, when a song is streamed on Spotify, um, 57% of that, and these are rough ass, rough numbers, but um, around 57% of the money generated from Spotify goes to the master holder. 30% stays with Spotify, Rapper Music, and around 13 10 to 13% gets paid out to, to publishers. So, you know, if your song's on radio, and, which is a very big publishing bucket or is not getting synced and you're relying on streaming money, um, that's the only thing you're getting. you're only already only getting 13%. You know part of it is about understanding the ecosystem and how people have to eat. And um, I think you know if that's the, the compromise of having and incentivizing more songwriting and, and producing and that have then giving away 50% of something that's already undervalued in the ecosystem, um, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. And so I don't, I don't think it's a measure of whether the artist is big or not. I think that's a general practice. If I was, you know, again, you know, thinking about collective bargaining and unionizing, creating some standards, you know, that's one of those things that, that I would sort of, um, think I, I would sort of really hammer to rock and, and make, uh, make, um, you know, legislate.
0: That's why you're a good attorney. I'm going to give you one last scenario. Say I am purely a songwriter and I, I don't tour, right? I mean, this who I'm about to use as an example is a huge songwriter, but like Diane Warren or someone, right? There's plenty of people that are just songwriters. So I don't know. Like, how do you feel about that? Because if, if someone's representing the songwriter or if I'm the songwriter and, you know, the producer's like, well, I get 50% of that. I, I feel like the songwriter could use the same argument if they are just a songwriter if that makes sense
2: well i think it's appreciate it's an appreciation for both sides right you yeah. you know you make a song and you know a lot of it again i'll lean in on hip-hop and r&b it's like yes. a lot of the essence of that song comes from the beat and the melody mm-hmm. production is hip-hop yeah it's you know hip-hop started with production not what lyrics lyrics calling you know the the djs and the producers they were the superstars then it sort of developed into something else, but um, it's such a core element of music that um, both should have mutual appreciation for other for each other. That's why we are, that's why we kind of have that fifty percent, you know, sort of buckets to pull from. Now, what I will say is, um, no one's stopping that songwriter from charging a songwriting fee, um, right. which would be new precedent um, in a lot of industries. Um, and the, the greats get it get to get to do that, but maybe that's the compromise not stealing money from producers but taking more money from the people who have it in the industry.
0: Yeah. And that's true entrepreneurship right there and and that's kind of what I was saying at the beginning of this episode like we have a lot of liberty and license and creativity in music so figure out what makes sense, you know? We want to work together and we want to grow together as a community. So thank you for bearing with me on that. Um well, you know, what one last thing on producers and, you know, this is similar to what we we're talking about with songwriting splits. But what if an artist and producer are working together, and, which I'm sure happens here in Milwaukee all the time. It happens everywhere. Right. Um, and, and can't afford an attorney. How can they memorialize their terms?
2: Stick to the basics. Don't try to be an attorney. Right. Yeah. If you if you're trying to memorialize your song splits, send an email saying, hey, these are the, the publishing splits for this song please confirm, and this shall, you know, um, serve as an agreement, right? Or, you know, these terms shall be agreed to in a, a record. Don't try to be an attorney. You're not. You need, and um, just keep it simple. You know, the common sense is something that should be in the spirit of, of everything you do, whether it's like law. Or, so just, just keep it simple. You know, memorial, the goal of memorializing it is to create that chain of record that you can prove. You know, you think about even blockchain and the the why people were excited about it. Um, at least from like that side, is that it always it created a chain of record, um, that that couldn't be, um, edited or changed. You know, it was it was you know it was memorialized, right? And um, if you have an email sent from an account, you know, you're just creating that chain of record for yourself. So, so my goal, my my advice is don't don't try to be an attorney, um you know, try, try to just get the job done.
0: I love that. So wise, because I hear from artists all the time, like, oh, I found this producer agreement on the internet and they send some like 10 page agreement that, you know, uh, they or any attorney can't understand. So you heard it from Carl, keep it simple. We already kind of touched on this, but are there options because it's not just producers, right? Are there options to compensate players? Of course, producers and engineers, if you truly do not have cash to do so. So, say people in this room want to work together. Um, yeah, go ahead.
2: If you, always publishing or royalties. Yep. You know, if you can't pay somebody, then that's when you really have to say, "Hey, here's a royalty. Here's a here's a piece of publishing." It's the spirit of fairness, man. You know, I think that's just how you have to operate in this business. So, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You don't have the money to afford or pay an instrumentalist. That might mean, hey, I'll give you 10% of publishing or 5% in publishing. Yeah. And that's the, that's the trade-off. You have to, it's it's bootstrapping, bartering. It's the core of like all business. Like it, there's no one size fits all shoe.
0: And again, to me, that's very empowering because that's not something that could happen in the pre-digital era. Okay, so I know this this could have a million answers too, but how should a remix deal be structured? Or what are some options there?
2: Um, a remix deal is a lot simpler, I think, and it should be, fra- it should be framed in a way. You just the core of a song is already there, right? And most remixes are using the chords and the lyrics that already exist. So, um, oftentimes, you know, there's less royalties involved, and it's and it's a small royalty, and um, more more likely a fee, um, that like a remix fee. Um, but you, there, there'll be smaller royalties there, um, but. understanding why they're smaller um, is important because the song, the fabric of the song was already created, right? You're just remixing the fabric of that song. So oftentimes that looks like a, a fee with a small, a really, really small royalty.
0: Yeah. And like anything, this is all negotiable, negotiable, right? So if it's some huge artist, that's going to remix you and they want to hire royalty, I would say, go for it. Yep. So how are arrangers paid?
2: Um, engineers, is, is that sort of the no? Equivalent? no like,
0: uh, if someone wants to do it if, if you want a new arrangement of your song, yeah,
2: it's interesting. I, I um, and I always give context. My experience, ninety-five percent has existed in my music experience has existed in hip hop and R and B. The concept of arranging is usually done by either the producer or the artist themselves. Mm-hmm. So it is not a common, you know, arrange like what what are we charging here? Um, because you, so I, I actually probably should shouldn't include and couldn't speak on um, arranging uh, compensation.
0: That's okay. I, I I can offer some. I can shed some light on that. So arranging is not songwriting. It's usually a fee. And so like what we're talking, yeah. and I don't I don't know the terms behind this. But for example, like you know, Dolly Parton's version of her song, I Will Always Love You, is very different from Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You, right? So um, I just remember it drilled into my brain in music school. Arranging is not songwriting, so that's usually fee-based, but like we talked about, you could get creative there as well. So what does an artist need to do if they're releasing a cover song?
2: Yeah, cover... Cover songs are, you know, purely a publishing thing, right? You know, uh, in terms of actually, um, you know, important to understand why, you know, you're not getting any publishing on a, a cover. You're not changing the lyrics. You're not, um, creating the melody. So, you know, those are underlying composition items. So you, you'd have to give up your publishing obviously because you didn't write or produce the song. Um, however, um, you know, you will be able to eat on the master without, um, you know, compromise, without sort of having to pay like a sample fee or anything like that, or cut them in. That is, that is purely usually it's a that's a publishing conversation. Samples are different, so you you better make sure that if you're covering a song, you're covering it and not creating a new version.
0: Yeah, and that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode: the two rights, right? So when you're covering a song. The songwriter needs to be compensated. So you can head over to Harry Fox's website, and you can purchase a mechanical license, and they will help you um, to estimate the number of streams, and so how much you owe to pay for that mechanical license. Um, generally speaking, you can cover any song that you want. When you're playing live, you all know sometimes there's venues that aren't paying their performing rights organizations. You know, in the U.S., ASCAP, BMI. CSAC and GMR fees. Um, So, but that's, that's very rare. Most venues pay their PRO fees. So you're good to go to play covers live, which is different from releasing a cover. And Carl brings up a really good point. A sample is going to be on the recording side. So that's a perfect segue into my next question. How do samples get cleared? And what does that even mean?
2: Yeah, in regards to sample clearance, it's a two-part process you got to deal with whoever owns the master and you got to deal with the the songwriters and publishers. So, um, those, those are, those are parties that you have to go, you have to get clearance from. It's a two-sided clearance.
0: That's great. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your time. We deeply appreciate it. And I'm going to stick around to answer a few more questions on, on business affairs.
2: Thank you. This is, this was awesome. Thank you, Emily. Um, and the book is great. And, um, know, I'm I was glad to, to be here today.
0: Thank you. We'll, we'll be in touch. Have a great night. Yeah. Okay. So I had two more questions for Carl, and then I want to open it up to you guys and be a wannabe attorney. Um, so I also wanted to talk about uh, what's recommended for a group band agreement. So while we're talking about business affairs, if you are an, in a group or a band, now is the time to have this conversation, right? Like you're getting ready to record, you're putting your band and group together. So you don't want to talk about the six months down the line, a year down the line, just like songwriting. So I come from like more of the indie rock side of things. Um, so again, like in indie rock, you're generally going to talk about the songwriting splits and they are truly going to be the songwriting splits. So like I said, I've, I've been privileged to work with you know, songwriters in Wilco and in the Rack and Tours. And if they write 10%, they that's what they asked for. That's that's just been my experience. Um, at the same time, there's, you know, huge pop stars that don't write on anything that can command 50% of songwriting or publishing, right? And I totally get that, right? Because if you're recording uh with a huge pop star, they're probably gonna turn it into a huge hit. So I'm dating myself with these references, but Janet Jackson, Britney Spears, Madonna, whatever, right? Although many of those people are songwriters, so I don't want to take anything away from that. But you get the idea. There are pop stars that command um, songwriting cuts on songs that they didn't write. Um, So that's a conversation to have with your band and group, right? Like, how are we going to handle songwriting? Are they really going to be the splits? Are we going to do it Lennon-McCartney style and just split it 50-50? Are we going to split everything five ways? Um, these are really important conversations to have. And it's, it's kind of like a prenup. (laughs) You want to have this conversation when you're in love, right? Not when God forbid you're getting divorced and the relationship is ending. So figure it out. Try to think about the long term, try to think about God forbid, you know, you're not playing with these people. You're not working with these folks anymore. And it doesn't always have to be a divorce, right? Like you're working with human beings. So um someone could decide to go to school they could decide you know touring's not for them they they're staying home and starting a family like whatever right so figure out how you're going to handle songwriting and how you're going to handle those conversations and again not to keep saying this but in in my background that tends to be the songwriting splits or the the songwriting splits are the true songwriting splits but then there's everything else right there's recording, which we talked about in depth today. There's merchandising, there's branding deals. Um, you know, especially when you're starting out and when you're when you're independent, there might be someone in the band or group who's fronting some of these costs, right? So maybe paying for gas for touring, or we'll talk about different merch options and, and on-demand merch options. So you don't have to do this, but there's pros and cons to doing it. But if someone's pressing up, merch, right? If someone's pressing up shirts or vinyl or whatever, that person should get paid back, obviously, um, for their expenses. And then generally in a band or group, in my experience, everything but songwriting is divided equally, right? So you get paid. I keep saying a thousand dollars, but a thousand dollars for a show, or you make a thousand dollars in merch online or in person or whatever. You're going to split that income after the person who's fronted gas and whatever it took to to get there or or make the items um, are reimbursed. So again, like now is the time to have these conversations instead of waiting. And then, what should folks look for and look out for in management contracts? So I've run management companies for decades, and you know, traditional management contracts will sign you up for a term for like a length of time. Um, I personally don't love that. You might not be able to get out of that or get around that. and I understand I understand that because the manager is investing time you know, and resources into you. But traditionally a management contract is going to be like three years or, or five years. I was, or however many years, I don't think it should be too many more years than, than three or five. That's for sure. And again, I, I do get that a little bit on the management side because it's a really hard job. Um, there was a study at one point that I think like with all the promo work and all the um, things, you know, all, all the work that goes in that d- doesn't directly bring in revenue, which I know you all can relate to. I mean, be- being a manager and sometimes being an artist can be less than minimum wage, right? So I understand where when a manager is, you know, working for a few years to, to work with an artist and build them up, that um, they might want them to stick around a few more years instead of maybe, you know, hopping um, to another manager Um, how we've always structured our deals. Um, I think this is something I made up. Maybe this exists other places. Um, oh, because what's also in a management agreement is what's called post term. Okay. So the old school way would be, you know, I'm managing you. And if, if we split up, um, I get a percentage on, um, everything I worked on again in perpetuity forever. Right. Right. I wasn't comfortable with any of these things I wasn't comfortable with the term thing because I felt like if someone didn't want to work with me, I didn't want them like counting down the days until they didn't have to work with me. I wanted you know want them to be able to terminate that relationship and then I was really uncomfortable with the perpetuity element in post term or management agreements um so I came up with what my attorney calls uh, my great attorney Joyce Dollinger um calls a mirrored term and frankly, every artist we've ever worked with, um, really liked this. And so what that means is if I work with Oscar for a year, then I get a year of post-term on, on what I worked with Oscar on. So I wouldn't get anything in the future when Oscar goes on to make more music. Um, but I would get a year of post-term on recordings and publishings, um, that Oscar worked on under the term. If I worked with Eli for 3 years, I would get 3 years of post term if I worked with Alex for I mean hopefully, you know, God forbid there's never a split and we work together forever. Um but that's always how we set up um our management agreements. And also, we set it up and this is standard too where the post term would diminish. So maybe I'm just making this up, but maybe we would get 15%, which is a standard manager manager cut. Um, fifteen percent of the gross for a year, maybe um you know, in year two and three, we would get ten percent, and then maybe um in year four and five, we would get five percent. so it would be a diminishing term on that um, yeah, but otherwise, I mean, we'll talk more about this in in the final episode when we we talk more about traditional artist teams. um, ask the manager's other artists, what it's like to work with them. And also be upfront with the manager. Like, will you be my main point of contact? Will, will will there be a day-to-day manager? There's no right or wrong answer on that. I, um, you know, came up managing... Um, I keep talking about the Dresden Dolls, but I came up managing uh, the Dresden Dolls and they took on management when I graduated college and I was the band's day-to-day manager. And I'm forever grateful... That they went with a really forward-thinking person named Mike Luba because Luba was smart enough, frankly, to not be threatened by me, who was like a core part of the band's team. And uh, I really like managed the band, and then when I needed something, he was there, and that's really smart from his perspective um, as a partner at a great management company, Madison House, because it allowed him to take on more artists, right? So when you have... So you might want a really good day-to-day manager that's hustling for you and and grinding for you. And then, um, you know, it's great to have Luba and his wisdom and experiences as I was still um, learning and and growing in in my industry career. So, yeah, I think those are the the main... You know, those are my thoughts on management agreements. And... um, yeah, so I'd like to open it up to you guys on any business affairs questions, issues, anything we covered you don't understand, anything that's going on with you guys. Yes, Oscar. And you can stay seated.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Oscar, for those at home. Um, and this is a very straightforward question, but something I'm sure a lot of young artists have on their minds. I was wondering... At what point in time, at what point in an artist's growth and thought process should they start to look for an attorney and what qualities should they look for in said attorney?
0: Yeah. Really great question. Um, This is why the final episode and the final chapter of my book is called When Do I Need an Attorney, Business Manager, and Manager Defining an Artist Traditional Team. The reason I use the word attorney at the beginning of that title um, is I often see um, artists with attorneys who don't need attorneys, right? So remember that attorneys in, in the music industry can get paid two ways. Generally, it's cash, right? It's going to be like a $1,500, $2,000, $2,500 retainer, and then their fees can range anything, you know, anywhere from like $300 for a brand new attorney up to like $750 an hour plus, right? Um so a lot of times I've met artists at conferences and they're like this is my attorney and I'm thinking you're paying them to be there, right? So to answer your question, you only really need I mean it's great to have someone advocating for you and like I mentioned my attorney Joyce, she's like my proverbial big sister. There's amazing attorneys and humans like Carl and Joyce out there. But to answer your question, you only, in my opinion, need a music attorney if you are doing a label deal, a publishing deal, a management contract, a producer contract, really anything dealing with your rights. Otherwise, you don't really need an attorney. Um, Again, we'll get more into this in the final episode, but managers, and maybe I'm biased, um, work on commission, right? So we only make money when you do. I mean, there's consulting deals and there's there's different ways to pay managers for sure. Um, but just keep that in mind. Now, if, if a manager or excuse me, if an attorney does want to take you on for 5% and they're really passionate about you, I would say go for it. If that's your first team member, great. But um, There's no reason, there's no reason in this day and age that you need to be shelling out thousands of dollars um, for an attorney until you need one. Um, And the reason I say in this day and age is in the pre-digital era, um, you needed an attorney to shop your recordings to labels because, and this, this is the case still very often, major labels won't accept unsolicited recordings Because they want to make sure it's really you, right? So it needs to come from someone they know. But this was all in the era when you needed a label to record and you needed a label to distribute. I mean, our next episode is going to be called How to Record with or without a budget. And then we're also going to talk about on episode six, setting up your release and and distribution plan. Those are the two main elements that have completely revolutionized the modern music industry. And I don't think we would be sitting in this room talking about this um, if that wasn't the case. So, again, the short answer is, in my opinion, you don't need an attorney unless you are doing a major rights deal, which would be label publishing producer or management. Yeah. Eli.
1: Thanks. Uh, yeah. I'm Eli. Um, I have a pretty loaded question. Um, and I'm kind of gonna just like, like rant for a little bit before I actually do it. a question. But, um, so my first thought I guess was how much can you get away with stealing Because I know if you sample drums, a lot of times no one's going to come after you for that. Obviously, a top line melody can easily be stolen and you can easily claim that someone stole it. A chord progression is kind of like sus, I guess. Um, But I once met a songwriter who talked about how um, part of the obligation in his deal was that he had to like write 20 songs or something and he couldn't he couldn't get out of his contract until that happened and um he had done stuff like write the top line melodies or like write like certain parts of the song and then the label would be like okay you only wrote like 18% of that song so he would have to like write five more songs before he wrote like one song you know so if he wrote like 20% of this song he only wrote 20% of a song you know like that doesn't count as a song so then, I was also wondering, is publishing and recording always 50-50? Um, and I guess, like, I don't know, like, what parts of a song are more valuable? Um, and I guess, I don't know, if you're working with a band, that's something you hash out on your own. But, like, yeah, I don't know. This all seems like so much gray area. So I guess that's my
0: question. Okay, cool. So let's break that down in a few ways. First, um, recording and publishing is always 50-50. I'm not an attorney, but that's, I'm going to go on a limb and say that's the law. That's just how it is. Um, let's break down each thing and, and talk about stealing. So um, I know you talked about top line. What else did you talk about? Songwriting and beats? Um, I talked about top line and then like, like a rhythm. Say like, I don't know. Yeah.
1: Underlying the,
0: the, the, I guess. Sure. Okay. So I'll talk about beats first. You know, I feel like the hot topic right now in the industry is AI. If you guys are seeing that and reading about that, that could maybe be a positive, not with what people are talking about, but like a positive element of EI, of, AI, of AI where um, AI could recognize that A beat was stolen, right? So that already happens, you know, when you distribute your music. I think it's pretty good, actually. So I think that one's kind of covered. Um, I know you said top line. What was the? Sorry, what was the third one? Songwriting. You guys hear about this all the time, right? Like, there's um, Robin Thicke court cases. There's Tom Petty. There's Sam Smith court cases, right? So that one always fascinates me. I mean there's musicologists testifying in court saying it is the same melody. It isn't the same melody. I mean, there's, there's philosophical conversations on this too, right? Like we all stand on the shoulder of giants, right? So, um, I just think you're seeing that in the courts, right? That's just going to happen. I think, um, I really don't think people do it, uh, deliberately more often than not. Um, you know, there's there's the famous, um, it's so bad that I'm spacing on this, but there's like a famous um, George Harrison song, right? And he had to pay the Shangri-Las, or I can definitely um, talk about um, the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. Now, now that might have been a sample issue. That had a Rolling Stones sample in it. Um, And the Rolling Stones got a lot, if not all of the publishing on that song. Right. So I think when it comes to songwriting, you have to do the best you can. If you get sued, you get sued. Just be honest. Just be yourself. Right. Like brains work in amazing ways. We're going to remember things subliminally or not. Right. So that just kind of is what it is. So I think to recap, AI can help solve beats and that technology is going to get better. So if you put a beat out there, the AI is going to recognize like, oh, Eli made this beat. Eli owns this. No, we are not going to let you distribute this to Spotify. Um, When it comes to songwriting, do the best you can. You know, I don't think anyone here is trying to steal or trying to rip other people off. So that is what it is. Um, And then top line, you know, I I think same thing. That's going to fall in the AI camp. But back to the example of your friend, um, you know, having to write 18 or 20 songs to fulfill their label agreement or their publishing agreement. That's what Carl was saying at the beginning of this episode. Like, I mean, I'll say this first before I reiterate, Carl, like know what you're signing up for, right? Like if you don't want to write 18 songs for a label or you don't want to fulfill your publishing contract, then why did you sign it in the first place, you know? Um, but if it's a really horrible deal and because there's also, you know, historical awful situations of, um, and this is again, something I love about the modern music industry that you guys have creative control. Um, the recording had to be acceptable to the label in the pre-digital era, right? And what does that even mean in art? Um, I think it even had to be in contracts, like commercially viable. Sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit. So it had to be acceptable. So you could make your art and the label could be like, no, that's not acceptable. Keep trying. And maybe that's, you know, part of the issue your friend got into is like, they kept writing songs and it wasn't acceptable. And then that happened to Neil Young. And so he made albums, you know, in the early eighties and I'm totally botching this and. I am a Neil Young fan and I don't sound like it, but you know, he made, he made, um, albums of just like noise or just like, you know, it sounds weird saying this. It's not right. But like electronic music or not like what the label deemed commercially acceptable for Neil Young albums. Right. He was just trying to fulfill his contract to get out of it. And they just kept rejecting it. So that's why when I keep talking about this, like pre-digital era, which might seem very, you know, like back in the day to you all, there is so much power. You guys have so much power and autonomy over your creative control, your creative output. You can write whatever you want. You can record whatever you want. You can distribute whatever you want. You know, you used to, in the pre-digital era, not even be able to record your own shows because that would be considered competing with the recording, competing with the label right we'll talk about that more in the revenue stream episode um but yeah hopefully that answers your question a little bit yeah no problem yeah
1: hi everyone um name's Leonard Taylor everybody calls me LT um my question is what do you think about artists who are starting the LLC for as far as they um since they are the label, the brand, and the artist. So what do you think about them starting an LLC for their business? Yeah.
0: Thank you. Really, really good question. So first, consult an accountant. And I don't even really care if they're a music accountant. Um, so I assume you live here in Wisconsin. Okay. So you want, you want to consult a Wisconsin CPA because um, they might encourage you and I, I will answer like your question broadly in a second, but you want to find an accountant where you live because they might say, you know what, starting an S-Core is better for you in Wisconsin. I'm not saying that's the right advice. Or they might say, oh, you live in South Carolina? LLCs are way more protected there, right? So there's no right or wrong type of business entity to start. Just find a certified public accountant in your state because they're going to tell you like, oh, the laws in California really favor this. Like, frankly, every company I've ever started is an S-Core. It's a lot easier on accounting. And that's what my accountants have always told me. None of my companies have ever been an LLC. But to answer what I think is your question, broadly speaking, starting an entity, Um I think you should start an entity, frankly, like when you can afford one, when you have an extra 500 bucks to start an entity, do it. Um, because some of you may know starting an entity will protect you if God forbid you get sued, right? So you're performing at a show, um, someone stage dives, someone has an overdose, any, any amount of things could happen that have nothing to do with you. um, that's going to protect you so you don't get sued personally. You don't lose your house, your car or anything that you own personally. As artists get bigger, they actually set up multiple entities because if you get sued on the road, then your recordings are then your recording income is protected. Then your music publishing income is protected. Then your merch entity is protected, right? Um so to answer your question, I would say The time to start an entity is when you have some extra money to do so. Um, And then consult with a CPA in the state that you live. And they're going to advise on the the best kind of entity for you to set up. And then as you grow in your career, um, and we'll talk about business managers in episode 12. A business manager is a music business specific accountant or bookkeeper. As you grow, the business manager is going to say, you know what, it's time your recordings are are too big your touring is too big we need to set up different entities for those um i'm really fortunate to be close with kevin lyman who's the founder of the warp tour and um you know warp tour ended a few years ago and i i know he was on the stand in court a few years ago cuz some kid got hurt um you know crowd surfing Right. So no one is suing Kevin Lyman. <laughs> he is protected by his entity. So yeah, it's a great idea to get an entity when you have that extra cash, but you don't need to do it from day one, if that makes sense. Otherwise you can just be an individual. And again, I'm not, a, I'm not um, an accountant, but everything's an, ex- not everything. That's, that's not the best advice, but like, remember, like You know, your gas to come here was an expense. You're coming to a music business event. So you can still take those deductions as an individual. Anyone else?
4: Allison? Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to um, follow up to, um, should I I stand someplace else? Okay. Um, To the LLC discussion. Yeah. Um, I think uh, for those musicians who might be thinking about that for themselves or for their bands, um, so I have my own music business, and we issue, um, you know, tax information, or we have to collect tax information from musicians. And um, you know, once you make what eight hundred dollars from in the state of Wisconsin from. A particular entity then you have to fill out your tax forms and everything for that per, for that particular place um, and if you are a musician that's doing that in a lot of different places you have to do it for all those places for those venues or wherever else you're doing even uh, any work really and um, if you are an LLC you have a, um, a business number that you're putting on that paperwork as opposed to your social security number which is a lot safer um, and if you're doing a lot of that paperwork you really I mean you don't even know in some of these venues where that social security number is getting put. So it's really nice to just have that peace of mind where you're getting, um, you have a different identity number out there for your business as a musician, as opposed to your personal information. So
0: that is brilliant insight. Thank you, Allison. And same for the address, right? You know? Yeah. Same for the address.
4: If you have a different address for yourself as a musician, like a PO box or something, um, or no studios, use no studios, um, for your business uh, as opposed to your personal address. But some people still use their personal address yeah. as their business address. That's fine too but, uh, yeah, the social security number is a big one.
0: I love that because, and again, it, and I, I think it feeds into what I'm saying. Like if you're, if you're getting gigs with Allison, if, if you're starting to fill out tax forms, then maybe you have the 500 bucks to start your entity. Right. So when you're getting to that space where it's like, Oh wow, I'm, I'm getting paid. Right. Like that's probably when it's time to start saving money and, and, uh, start your entity.
3: My name is Gray Genius, for everybody here and everybody at home. So I have a question that's more about music administration. Yeah. So the first part of the question is, if you make the song, typically you're the one who registers the song, right? Not the other artists or anybody else and all that.
0: So well, what does right. make the song mean? Or if
3: you create, you own the song, sorry.
0: Okay. The recording or the publishing? The publishing. Okay, yeah. Thank you.
3: All right, so... That's the first part of the question. Yeah. You, you're you typically the one who registers everything, correct? Yeah. Your PRO. So,
0: so say you and Oscar write a song together 50-50, you're going to register the songwriting for your 50%, and Oscar's going to register the 50% for Oscar's 50%. So you're just in charge of your own publishing. But if you write the song 100%, you go and register it with your PRO, and then your publishing publishing and uh, administer administration and we'll dig into what that means in episode five
3: so you wouldn't include them when you're registering them or like maybe they're just the artist name or
0: that's exactly i think i think you can put oscar's name in just for clarity because that's going to help ASCAP. but they're not going to they can't pay oscar they can't pay your co-writer unless oscar registers um, because they don't know where the money is going to go. And it mm-hmm. doesn't, you could be with ASCAP. Os- Oscar can be with BMI. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be with the same PRO, but you're just responsible for your share. But don't quote me on this. I do think they will ask for the other info because they mm-hmm. want to match that with your co-writer just to make sure everyone's on the same page.
3: Okay. And then my second part to that question is I have B- I have a uh, BMI. Yeah. So Yes, it's 50-50, but it's listed as 100 and 100. Yes. So when you, the songwriting part and the publishing part, Yep. if you agree to say 60-40 split, it should be the, the same at the top as the same as the bottom, like the songwriting part and the publishing part should be the same.
0: Okay, so I'll explain. That. I, I think this is, this is what you're asking. And again, we'll do a deeper dive on... Um, Uh, Episode five, music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. But this is the business affairs episode, so it's totally appropriate. So when you write a song, you have first, like if you're a songwriter, please go sign up for a performing rights organization. In the U.S., that's going to be ASCAP or BMI. There's also CSAC and GMR. I push ASCAP and BMI because anyone can sign up. GMR and CSAC are invite only. I've also heard of artists being invited to CSAC and then a few years later, CSAC dropping them and switching PRO administrators is a huge pain. So just go with ASCAP or BMI. I have some more detail on the book on like... um, well, I'll, I'll just tell you, like, you know, if you know a human at one of them, maybe go with ASCAP or BMI. but it doesn't matter. These are regulated by the government. Don't, don't overthink it. Again, there's some tips in the book from Zoe Keating and in that free podcast episode in season one about that. But anyway, sign up for your PRO. This is nothing to be scared of. I have met too many songwriters over the past few years, usually young who aren't signed up for their performing rights organization. And it's different in different countries, right? So if you're in Ghana, you have you know that performing rights organization. If you're in the UK, it's called PRS. If you're in France, it's called SISM. But in the US, it's ASCAP and BMI. If you don't sign up for a PRO and register your songs within two and a half years, you do not get that money. It goes into what is called the black box. It goes to Taylor Swift. It pays ASCAP's rent. So again, this is regulated by the government. That money is yours. Go get it. There is nothing scary about that. If you just sign up for a PRO and you are not collecting on your music publishing, and music publishing is songwriting, and we'll give a more clear definition on that in episode five, you are, mis- you are not collecting on your music publishing in full. And this goes to what I think you're asking. So, um, say there actually are songwriters named Emily White, but, um, say I'm Emily White, a songwriter, and I go to register my song with ASCAP. It's going to divide me into two, even though I wrote a hundred percent of the song, it's going to say you're at, you're Emily White, the songwriter, and then it's going to encourage me to create what's called a publishing designee. So maybe I'm Emily White music or something too. So even though I wrote 100% of the song in the PRO, in ASCAP or BMI, you're going to see that a song you wrote 100% is 50% the writers share, 50% the publishers share. This is an old school 20th century thing that's going to take way too long to untangle. It just is what it is. So that is why Siri said, Siri didn't get that. (laughs) Um, So that is why Um, you need to sign up with someone like SongTrust, who's a publishing administrator. Because if your songwriting is being covered, sold, streamed, or any of the above, and you are only with ASCAP or BMI, you are missing out on that money. Now, back in the day, in the pre-digital era, you would have to sign to a a publishing company to get that money. But now I'm very obsessed with SongTrust because who's, and actually downtown is sponsoring this episode because I've been so obsessed with SongTrust. Downtown owns SongTrust, but that came out very organically. SongTrust has democratized music publishing. So now you can go sign up with SongTrust and um, collect on the rest of your your publishing. So does that answer your question? Are you confused when on ASCAP, or sorry, you're with BMI, on BMI that... Um, no, it was just okay. more
3: so like if, if me and you do a song, yeah. for example, and we agree
0: 60-40. I see.
3: And the songwriting slash composition yeah. part should be 60 and the publishing should also be 60? Yeah. Or is it, because I've run into that a couple of times. Sorry, what say people? that one
0: more time because I got distracted by Siri and I'm so sorry that I gave that very long <laughs> winded answer, but hopefully you learned from that because it is very important.
3: Essentially, I'm saying should the the first, the, the two halves equal the same amount? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Wow. That was such a. I'm so sorry that I gave a long-winded answer, but that. But publishing is the number one missing revenue stream. So I'm. I'm not sorry. Um, yes, it needs to add to a hundred, and that goes back to what Carl and I were talking about with communication. So if you and I are sitting down to write a song, or we're hitting the studio, that's why you need to say like, "I wrote these songs," or whoever you want to communicate it. Like, if you contribute to the songwriting process, let me know after the session. So you have that conversation, you throw it in an email, you both agree to terms because you're exactly right. If if you think, or, or it could be a typo, right? If you wrote 60% and I put in 30%, ASCAP's going to be like, well, where's this remaining 10 going, right? So yeah, just make sure everyone's on the same page, but you're just in charge of, um, of registering your songwriting split. But yeah, that's a really good question that I haven't thought about. You just... Try to make sure your songwriters have it together because you don't want an admin error to cause a delay in your payments on that song, if that makes sense. Thank you. Yes, no problem. All right. Well, hopefully we didn't bore you too much with musicians' favorite topic, getting your business affairs together come on back on Tuesday where we are finally going to dig into the magic of recording and talk about how to record with or without a budget. Thanks again to my amazing guest, Carl Folks Esquire, and you guys for all of your questions. It's really inspiring. We'll see you on Tuesday.